So we're still doing our study of what is a Reformed Church, and today we're going to be looking at the idea that a Reformed Church is a covenantal church. And so before we begin that, let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask for his help. Father, again, we ask this morning that you help us uh, with your word, that you would teach us more and more the idea that Jesus is on every page, and what does that mean, and why do we say it? And so help us to understand that as a church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, as we're going to begin talking about what does it mean that we are a covenantal church. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, this is familiar passages to you, that's fine. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our own likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over the creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed and that is on the face of the earth and every tree that it, with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And so turn to chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Chapter 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so this first interaction that God has with man is typically called the covenant of works. Or sometimes it's called the covenant of creation or the, the covenant of life. Actually, the uh, confession uses all three of those terms and they're all referring to the same idea. I think a lot of times when we hear the word works as uh, Protestants, we automatically have this kind of reaction to it. But essentially what is meant by this idea of the covenant of works, which is to make, to be sure the, the, the phrase covenant of works is a theological term. It's not a biblical term in that the Bible doesn't use it. But so what do we mean by it? It means that Adam and Eve were to live in the garden and were they to do so in perfect obedience, they would have experienced this life everlasting, a kind of reward. Their works would have earned them life. And this covenant, I think it's important for us to understand that it's not something that was initiated by man. It's not something that man somehow caught the, the eye of God and God's like, hmm, look at these great people. Let me do something with them. Uh, it still required God to come down and initiate us with us. Even though he created us, he had to come down and initiate this interaction with us. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 7, encourage you this week to get this idea of the fullness of what it means to be covenantal. I think study that chapter and just, it's very dense, um, just as most of the confession is. So spend some time reading through it and take your time with it. But this is what the first section of that chapter says. It says, 
The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they never could or they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of the covenant. And so this agreement that God is coming down and making with man is God's condescension to man. And then we use the word, we think of the word condescending as you're being condescending to me. You're looking down on me. We kind of have this negative connotation of it, but it literally means that God had to come down. He had to come down off his throne and enter into this interaction with man. And so it's a very gracious thing. The covenant of works is really a, it's a very gracious thing that he would do that. Boiled down, every man, if they were perfectly obedient, would still have needed God's help to do so. And so God then makes this covenant with him. And then how does man respond? Well, we know how man responds. Turn with me to Genesis 3. Any questions so far? That idea of God condescending to man in order to enter into a covenant with us. Yeah. So the covenant of works is this: that God has given man the earth to fill it and subdue it, and He's given us dominion over all of creation. And the only rule in the garden was this: don't eat of that tree. And well, there were two rules actually. The first one was, eat of all the other trees. And so there was graciousness in that. And then the second was this, don't eat of that tree. If you eat of these trees, you will have life. But if you eat of this one, you will have death. And so that that's the very simple essence of that covenant of works. Can I simplify you more, maybe? Yeah. To say, if you obey God perfectly, Yeah, that's good. Okay, because this is a funny thing. This is really super helpful to say that if you want to go to heaven, all you have to do is obey God perfectly. Of course, we have a sinful nature. Right. We're already doomed when we start. But for Adam and Eve, they they did not have right. a sinful nature. Mm-hmm. All you got to do is obey God perfectly, and you live. Yep. That's and good. That still stands today. Yeah, I mean, if if meaning it stands against if if, if you want to, if you're a good person, if you're perfect, you can go to heaven. Nobody perfect, right? And and I think that's that's good to bring out this covenant of works. Still, the fact that we are in violation of the covenant of works are, is still against us today because we are Adam's seed, and we're gonna we'll get into that. That's good. But I guess to to keep it at, at this level so far. If you just keep it that simple with obey God and you'll live forever, mm-hmm. disobey God and you'll die. It was truly that simple. But yep. God condescended to come down, to even communicate it. My point is, He made it simple. Right. He didn't say, here are the 665 laws that you need to understand of how right. you should do when this happens or that happens. Yeah, there was he just one. 
It was very simple, and man could not follow that one simple law. Genesis 3, chapter, or 3, 6, and, oh yeah, Alex, go ahead. Uh, and just to caveat with that, the, that law wasn't arbitrary. Like, right. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't for nothing. It wasn't just, you know, something he had imposed for nothing. Not only is that a manifestation of his character, obviously, but also for our good. Like, I think that's a lot. A lot of people hear about the covenant works and they get, they recoil a little bit at this idea of, of, of there being any law. It's like, no, 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 it's like the same way that a parent gives his child rules. Mm-hmm. Those are not just because, oh, I want to exert my authority on my son. It's like, no, it's because I love you. Mm-hmm. And I know that these rules are for your good. These will help you to grow and to be truly happy. Not just some kind of momentary fleeting happiness, but eternal happiness. And good. so we, it's not like we were just like, oh, you know, we really were just, you know, spoke rats in that situation. It's like, we, we thought we knew better, and here we are. Uh, mm-hmm. It's children. That's know? good. They, uh... Yeah, the, the complaint that you often hear against this one rule is, why did he keep that from them? Which shows our own wickedness. That God somehow is keeping things from his people. You know, it's that we, he's holding out on really good stuff. Which is exactly what Satan told Eve. That he's just holding out on you. And uh, that's the same lie that we're, that's all sin is. Is the belief that he's holding out on us. And uh, we want his we want his job, and that's good. We want him out of the way so that we can we can finally do it. If they kept if God kept it this simple in the beginning, one of the things that is so good when you're teaching on this is sometimes people overcomplicate and make the gospel too religious of a thing. Mm-hmm. When you just simply present the covenant of works to people and say, "In the beginning, God yeah. said." Obey me and live. Disobey me and die. And we are living through that. Um, it's, it's just it's really important because I think a lot of people talk about how wonderful Jesus is and never describe the need that people have. I mean, right. a lot of the sermons I heard growing up, there was a lot of good things in them. Mm-hmm. But rare, nobody talked about God's wrath. Right. Yeah. And so Genesis 3, 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree is desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband and who was with her and he ate. So their eyes were both opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. And so, yep, yeah, Todd, go ahead. question
to be, by the way. I mean, the Bible says what it says and God is who He is. I, I think that's a great place to be. Um, we we don't need to find this. There's not, there's not a third level of knowledge that we need to somehow get to as Christians to understand God's decree. Um, you know, yes, to answer your question, they were able to follow that perfectly. Just like you and I in our new natures in Christ are able to follow His law. Do we? No. Because we saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes because we still fall under the trap. The, 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 the serpent is still lying to us. Now, we don't need the serpent to lie to us to sin, but that he does. And so the same thing is happening today. Now, what happens to Adam and Eve when they fall in sin when they sin, what happens to their nature, that ability that they had to live, that ability that they had to be perfect and follow the rule of God goes away. They fall. Their natures are falling. They're dead in their trespasses. And, you know, we, we could go to all the passages. that You know, they, they are no longer this well of life. They are now a valley of dry bones. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are the ones... You know, what does Romans 3 say? That they are worthless, altogether worthless. No one seeks after God. No one does good. No, not one. That is Adam and Eve in sin. And so that's, that's what the covenant of works is all about. Man is fallen because he did not follow that. Adam and Eve had sons. What did one of them do to the other? Demonstrated that they were fallen. I mean, it's, it's immediate. We didn't even have to read past chapter 3. We get into chapter 4 and the very first few verses. God is warning one of, the, one of the children of Adam and Eve, hey, sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you, but you must master it. You must deal with it. It's the same thing he's telling us today. It's the same thing that we, the same struggle that we have. You know, you could fill in the blank with Cain and Abel and it could be us. And so that's that same struggle uh, that we're still having today. And I, you know, we, and we could go, we could labor this and, and spend a whole lot of time here, but I want to, I want to move past this so that we can see that we are fallen and there's someone who has to make us unfallen, who has to redeem us in that. You know what? We broke the terms of the covenant. In Adam, we broke those terms. And what, what was the consequence? You shall surely die. The Hebrew there literally says, while you are dying, you will die. It is a bad thing. Death, death. And so someone, man is, is sinful, and so someone needs to redeem man. What, is, what does redeem mean? Just the English definition. To regain possession of something in exchange for payment. We use the word redemption all the time. We want... The idea of redemption, we have lost something. We want to regain that thing. We don't want to, not in Christ. We don't want anything to do with God. But in order to do that, there has to be a payment. 
in order for us to regain our status before God, we have to have the reward that we missed out on in that first covenant. We need a payment. Another is going to have to come along and follow the terms of the first covenant. Another one's going to have to come along and do the thing that no one in Adam could do. It's kind of like a, um, there has to be a starting over. There has to be one that comes and becomes Adam again in many ways. And so turn with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 45. So again, remember, in Adam there's death, but there need, if, if there was just another Adam, if we just had another start, and that new start could somehow follow the law, then we could all be redeemed. Here we have that very thing written down. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, speaking of Adam, a man of dust. The second man, speaking of Christ, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is that idea that you will hear a lot of times theologians will use the word the second Adam. That is Jesus Christ who has come to start over, to do the thing that we could not do. And the very first place that you see this picture of grace is back in Genesis again. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. We just read, you know, that that man and woman sinned and they, they hid from God and that they knew they were sinful and God is searching for them as if, you know, He's not looking for them like He's uh, lost them. He's He's looking for them like you... Know your kids hiding behind the couch, but you call for them anyway. And uh, and he says this, the, verse fourteen: The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the beasts, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. Verse fifteen: I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, her offspring, shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. In the midst of this punishment, in the midst of this destruction that's caused from sin, and if if you just keep reading, you see the the sin and the judgment against Adam and Eve. And in chapter 4, we have the first murder and, and so forth and so on. In the midst of that, verse 15, you have this new idea this new covenant that is going to be made, that he is going to bruise the head of the serpent. He is going to destroy the serpent. This covenant is known as the covenant of grace. It's made between the Father and the Son on behalf of those who are called his people. Throughout the rest of Scripture, 
God is going to handle his people in this structure, under the constructs of this covenant. And so I think of it this way. God, or we needed a redeemer. We needed someone who could come and start over. We proved ourselves to be faulty as people involved in this covenant relationship. And so who then does God come and form a covenant with? Well, he forms it with himself. God the Father with God the Son. And what's the idea? You, the Son, will redeem the people that I have set aside from the foundations of the earth. And, I'll, you know, there's two ways to look at this. You can look at it in a man-centered way, not in a bad thing, or you can look at it in a God-centered way. Man is created to life. Man dies in sin. Man is redeemed. Man gains the reward. Or, God is the subject. God creates man to live. God keeps a sinful remnant in the midst of the world. And that remnant is still sinful, and we're learning about that in, in Isaiah the God-man comes to redeem man through his own death, and then God grants man the reward due to the God-man himself. This is this idea of, and you'll hear me say this a lot, we talk about, I talk about a redemptive arc. Creation, fall, redemption, and then consummation or glory. This whole idea... It's how we read Scripture. When we look at Scripture, when I look at a passage like Isaiah chapter 5, for instance, we I see that redemptive arc in it. When I, I know, what is this book about? It is, a book, it is about Genesis 3.15. It is about that covenant that God made with Himself to save His people. And it's played out throughout the rest of the pages. I mean, you you can turn to Genesis chapter 15. I think it's 15. Yeah, when God makes the covenant with Abram. You might remember the passage. Genesis chapter 15, verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be... Sojourners in a land that is not theirs will be servants. And he goes on and talks about their time in Egypt. In verse 17, when the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land. Who passed between the pieces? Normally in a covenant, both parties would pass between the pieces. If this covenant was with Abram, guess what Abram would have done? He would have got up and walked through the pieces himself. But what was Abram? Passed out in the corner. Who walked through the pieces? God. Who was the covenant with? Who was going to keep the ends of the covenant? God. The rest of the story is about that. God is going to come and save his people. This is how we view Scripture. When I say Christ is on every page, what we mean is that the whole of Scripture is about the redeeming work that God has planned for His people. And so if that's true, how is it, when I look at a passage like Isaiah 5, 
and I see all of that there, how then am I required to interpret it in light of that? If I have this other construct put on me, let's say that I don't have this idea of redemption put on me and that I kind of come to it with my own lenses, then what am I going to do? I'm going to make it about me. I'm going to make it about today. I'm going to make it about the things that are around me. I'm going to make the enemies of God the enemies of me because I'm going to make myself God. I'm not going to make myself his enemies. If you want to see a picture of that, listen to most sermons that feature man as the center, man as the hero, God as the sideshow that just showers gifts upon man, and man is the benefactor of those things, and man is somehow able to save himself. But if we look at Scripture the way it really reads, we are always the ones that need saved. He is always the Savior, and He always gets the glory. Any any thoughts or any questions about that? I think one thing is that people who, you know, Reformed people in general who have this covenantal view of Scripture are often accused of forcing Jesus into our interpretation of the Scriptures. And someone might hear my sermon on Isaiah 5 and be like, well, you forced Jesus in there. It's not about him at all. And I would say the opposite. I would say that if Jesus is not in your sermons, that you are forcing your own interpretation on the text. And so, I'd, any thoughts on that? Any questions about that? Couple. So, um, covenant theology is tying together the ark is from beginning from creation to the end. You said glory. That's until God, Jesus comes back and we all go to heaven. Right. Okay, so everything between those two. And then you look at Isaiah 5 and you say, I know where the ark is at this point Mm -hmm. that God isn't knowing. And he's saying some some hard words here. What you will hear and and understand, I'm someone who who did not grow up believing all the the things you're talking about. It's not that I didn't even believe in it. Nobody was talking about it. They were talking about me and how I could be happy in, in life. And so, because of that, Isaiah 5 is just a really good example. What are those who call evil good and good evil and all that? And then I'm going to read you one more. Uh, verse 24, Because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel, Therefore, the anger of the Lord is rousing against his people. So they were rejecting the things he had been telling them forever. Mm-hmm. That's good. A lot of people in our day and age, in our culture, in our town, would say, man, you put way too much emphasis on the Old Testament. And this would be a difference between what we believe, covenant theology, it just is connecting that ark to say it's all God's word, whereas a lot of people would split that. And those mm-hmm. people are called, sometimes called dispensationalists. They say, well, that, that was for the, that was the Old Testament. That was the God of the Old Testament. He doesn't have nothing to do with what we believe. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. Well, that God of the Old Testament said he's going to send a Savior who could fulfill the covenant of work, right? Right. So you just told us about mm-hmm. that in sermon. So that would be one big thing for us to understand about being in a Reformed church, Reformed, Reformation-oriented church, 
It's just that we don't cut that in half. When I learned this, like when I really got convinced it was in a Bible study, and I actually ripped the page out of my Bible that said New Testament. And I said, there, that's good. Now there's no man's words in this entire thing. It's kind of a, you don't need to do that. It's yeah. <laughs> sort of a thing to be like, hey, so you're telling me that the only, there's no, this page that divides this. Mm-hmm. Because what I'm getting at is I was kind of taught that, man, the God of the Old Testament is totally different. And, uh, yeah. You know. It's a very common teaching that he deals with the people of the Old Testament differently than he deals with the church today. That the church is kind of this own, its own little thing. You know, you'll hear people say things like the church age. And uh, we are in the church age and he deals with the church differently. But then he has his people of Israel and he's going to deal with them in one way. And, and that sort of interpretation leads you to some pretty outlandish beliefs. I mean, I heard a very prominent... TV pastor, I won't give his name, but uh, who said something to the along the lines of that he could show from Scripture that the Jews were not responsible for Jesus' death. And why would he even say something like that? Because he has this framework of the Jews are still in this, you know, that they're still a different God's people than we are God's people. And God has a plan for them. And so if you can somehow take the guilt of Christ's death off the Jews, then you can make it better for them today. And, and these kinds of guys will stand next, right next to a rabbi who doesn't believe in Jesus and link arms with them. I mean, that's just bad. And then what, what do I, what, and you know, what do we see? We all are responsible for Christ's death. That's what we see. We we don't. I'm not blaming the Jews either. I'm blaming me. And so it's not anti-Semitism. It's anti-me. I'm the reason for Christ's death. Yep, go ahead, Kelly. Yeah, just, if you hear it out to these people, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever will be. Mm-hmm. Initially, they would go, well, "Yeah, that's true," but they wouldn't realize that they're the ones who are changing. That you know what they think. Right, and that's and that's you quoted scripture. That's from Hebrews, right? That he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we want to make him different yesterday and today and forever for some for some reason. It's because we don't like reading Isaiah five and and passages like it that make you know I'm the one that that he is saying woe to. Without Christ, that is me. In Christ, I still suffer, but thankfully, because of Christ, I won't. And it's not about me. It's about what he did, and it's continually about what he did. And I think that is that is the structure of, of covenant theology. That is why we look at Scripture and say, yes, this is about Jesus. And, and you know, you're talking about ways that we, what, you know, the Old Testament and the New Testament divided and ways that we see that. Well, if you look through, if you continue to read through the Old Testament, it manifests itself in different ways. You know, with Noah, it was... It was one thing, and Noah gathered up, or God gathered up the people of Noah and put them on an ark and saved them, and there was a rainbow, and he said, I'll never do that again. And, and then with Abram, what was it? Well, we just read that. It was the smoking pot, and, and Abram and his people were the people of God. And then who was it next? Well, it was Moses. And Moses went and retrieved the people of God from Egypt, and he brought them out. And God gave them a whole slew of laws 
and said, this is who you are, this will be, you will be my people, and I will be your God, and you will follow these commandments. Then it was David, and David was representative of all the kings of Israel. And what did God tell David? One day, there will be a king who will sit on your throne forever. And we had to wade through a lot of bad kings to get to the only good king. And so, what is it about? It's about Jesus. And what? And then the New Testament is this idea of the new covenant. Well, how do we separate those things? You know, the idea of the, the Old and New Testament. And it's and it's not wrong because the Old Testament was very physical. You could look at it and you could see the signs. What was the sign with Abraham? You will circumcise your children. Well, you know, and what was the sign of Moses? Here are the laws. There's the temple. You must kill these animals every day in order to atone for the sin of the people. It was a very physical thing. Even the kingdom of David. What is it in the new covenant? We still have those signs. It's just a very spiritual thing. It's not less real. Because we're no longer killing goats and sheep, it doesn't make that any more a re- any less a reality. That reality is bound up in Jesus Christ now. Yeah, go ahead. All the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. Exactly. Paul said he was referring to the promises that God made, the covenants that He would do this and this, and one day there's going to be a lamb, and one day there's going to be a king who can't be dethroned. And one day, it's all going to be redeemed. Right. And all that, of those promises in Christ are gained. Amen. One of the things that gets tricky for us is that we think of Israel as a nation, which it was back then, okay, and still is mm-hmm. in the same way. And we think of America, where we should be thinking of the church. Yep. So the, the promises of God are to the church, they're not to America. Or Canada, or wherever it is you say, that's my flag, Mexico, anywhere. All of those things don't matter. The church is what matters. Mm-hmm. So we, we look at things wrong. And so, mm-hmm. like in politics, for example, you see this emphasis on, you know, people, we, it's, we just want to, uh, we want to be powerful. We want, um, God bless America, we want American to, to represent Christianity. Well, that's wrong. Right. Because we need to be praying for the church to represent Christianity. Mm-hmm. And the church to grow and swell and do. Why? Because all the promises that were ever made to Israel were actually made to us. Made to his people. In Christ yeah. alone. That's good. Because they were all made about him, to him, for him, through him. That's what Paul says. Exactly. So we, we get our emphasis back on the church. We, we say, man, America does need Christ. God, please bless America uh, as a prayer request. But we don't see it as just we're better, bigger, badder, and stronger. Well, Israel gets delivered from all this stuff, and then what do they do? They start to say, we're bigger, badder, stronger. I mean, this is great. Mm-hmm. You know? And then all this, and then it's just a slow fade. They go right back, and you're saying, man, God brought us across a sea, a river. Uh, out of bondage, out of going to Egypt, slew all the firstborn. You would never forget that, would you? Yeah, you would. Apparently, mm-hmm. there's some spiritual amnesia going on. I have it too. So. 
But it, and it should serve as a, a warning to us that at one point God just whistles for the enemies and they come in. And it's and like you said, it's not about the United States. It's about the church. And there's nothing wrong to love your country and to care for it and to wish its blessing and prosperity at all. That's that's a good thing. We should want that for our country. So but when you teach covenant theology, this is my point. They most people that believe in covenant theology don't get lost in that. Right. They say this is about the church. Right. Yeah, it's now, not about people that news. reject covenant theology end up being the same people that have some huge conspiracy between us, Israel, Iran. Mm. They have all these weird things that are like based on the newspaper and yeah. you know, what in the world. Yeah. Well, they're not following covenant theology. And so they're identifying the 88 reasons the world's going to end in 1988 at Courtney's church you grew up in. They were doing it almost every year. They had 1993. There was like 93 reasons the world's going to end in 1993. Ooh. And then she was like, man, I was sitting there thinking, what am I going to school for? <laughs> you know, like, let's just go to the prom. Let's just forget graduation. Let's just forget it all. And uh, I was like, did you really think like that? She was like, yeah, I, mean, I just thought, seriously, all all this teaching is that the world's going to come to it. Yeah. And, it, uh, and she always says, of course it did. <laughs> and kind of theology grounds you it, it keeps you away from floating around and it you know it's, we're going to get more into this when we talk about the sacraments we're going to spend a whole time talking about it so i don't want to get into this too much but when we're talking about the signs of the the covenant in the old testament it was very physical again it was it was circumcision it was passover these were very these were very violent bloody kinds of things but in the new testament all of that death and all of that blood happened to one man and so those signs changed they still represent the same ideas baptism with water still represents the cleansing that takes place through the holy spirit you know what was what was the passover well the passover or what or what was circumcision it was representative of that cleansing that that man had this original sin on him that had to be removed and so for and if you read through the Old Testament, what did God all the time say? It wasn't circumcision that I was worried about. I really wanted you to be circumcised in your heart. This is about a cleansing. This is about a newness. And so with baptism, it's the same idea. The water doesn't do anything. It's it's not a. Uh, it's it's you know he could you could just fill in the words again. I it's it's fine that you were baptized, but what I really wanted you was to be baptized in your heart. I wanted there to be cleansing. I wanted there to be renewal. And so baptism just shows the thing that he has done. The Lord's Supper is the same way. We took the supper this morning. It, it has it points back to the Passover. What did the Passover do? Well, the blood of the Lamb was wiped on the doorpost, so that the angel of the Lord passed over those families and didn't kill their babies. Well, what is it for us today? Well, we don't have we don't cook a lamb and eat it in haste like they did in Israel all those years and those who still are waiting for their Messiah still do. We have our Lord Jesus represented who was the once and for all Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so these signs of the covenant are not the covenant themselves in that they don't do anything. It's God himself 
who does the work. And we're going, again, we're going to talk a lot about those signs because they have some particular emphasis in the Reformed Church and then even in the Presbyterian Church that we're going to talk about. But those signs point to God and may represent His promise to us. And so covenant theology uh, represents, again, the whole of what Scripture's teaching. We have these signs that just point forward to the promises of God and they show us Him. Any thoughts? It was a whirlwind. Could spend, I mean, I had a seminary class called Covenant Theology, so you could spend a whole lot of depth in it. But, um, yeah, thank you. Any any other thoughts or questions? Yeah, Alex, go ahead. Clarification. Yeah. And obviously I know what you all are saying, but for anybody who isn't familiar, dispensationalists don't believe it's true. True concepts. Yes. But what he's saying is distinctly different ways of like different people, different line of redemption. That's the issue. So they're not Marcionites, they're not Gnostics. Dispensationalists are Orthodox Christians. They've just got some confusion. And, and actually I would say Paul speaks out against this in scripture itself, mm-hmm. talking about genealogies and everything else. Like it is it and I get the impulse, the impulse is because uh, my first books I read is Yeah. Twenty four hours like that whole all that stuff. It's great because you start to somehow magically see this this crimson line and all this other stuff that dispensationalists talk about. The impulse is great. They're trying to be Bereans. It just goes in the wrong direction. Also you're talking about, about but you're talking about dispensational teachers and theology books. Right. So you you got to back it up a little bit. But we got to leave the countenance than anything else. So I, I want to, instead of strongman, I want to look at what is the very best of it. What is the consistent belief there? They don't, you're right, functionally, just like a lot well, of countenance, I, I know, functionally. I want to clarify something. Like, people in the Bible Belt will literally say that was the God of the Old Testament. Right. They don't believe there are two gods. I agree with you, but that is literally what they say. Absolutely, I've heard the same thing. What they mean by that that is I don't want to have nothing to do with the God of the Old Testament. Yeah. Because they don't understand the Old Testament. Absolutely. And they so their focus is on Jesus. Well, guess what? Jesus is in the Old Testament too. Amen. So that's where that's where the covenant theology is different. Absolutely. So, yeah, we didn't mean to make a straw man, but practically speaking, that is how everybody views that, unless they read theology books. Right. The people that you just know and work with, they say, that was the God of the Old Testament. Um, Dr. Howe here at Murray State and I got into a huge argument about the death penalty one time, and she said, I believe that the God I know would never be in favor of the death penalty. And I right. said, what religion are you? And she said, well, I'm Catholic. And I said, oh, well, you, so you believe in the Bible? And she was like, yeah. I said, so you think the God of the Bible is not in favor of the death penalty? And she said, not the God of the New Testament. Yeah. The God so, of the New Testament actually gave his son capital punishment for my sins. And here's, what are you talking about? And I, so I think just to kind of sum it up, there's just, there's some continuity problems. I think that, you know, the, the, covenant, theolo- the covenant theologian says there is complete continuity from Genesis 1 yeah. to, rep- to the end of Revelation, whereas the dispensationalists will say there are breaks. Yeah. And it's not a 
they don't believe in two gods. I, you know, and they, they're very smart dispensational theologians, so and that would put me under the table probably. So I'm not even saying that, but they, I would say they have continuity problems. They see God acting in certain ways at certain times, and I see God acting the same way all the time. Yeah. And so I think that's the best way to summarize that. And that, and interestingly enough, and you could say the same thing about covenant theologians, dispensationalism, you get one guy talking about it and you talk to the, another one and they don't even agree. So no. there's a lot of... They don't even know they're dispensational. I didn't know I was dispensational. Yeah, and it's, and it's, this, I mean, it's the same thing with people who go to church at... You know, who, who attend church at Presbyterian churches their whole lives. They may not know the words covenant theology, but I think it's important for us to establish this is the framework from which we understand things. Here's what, here's what I'm saying that I think, I think that builds our church, that ought to build us up. Is it as a slow fade before you're standing in a classroom saying, well, I don't believe in the God of the Old Testament. You know, you think you won't stand there and say that? Right. You quit listening, growing and learning, and you will. Mm-hmm. Because I went to school with all these people that were trading it off, that were dismissing Scripture, and they didn't know anything. And here I was the guy who had not cared about it at all, who started caring about it. I want to know everything I can. And then they're all walking away from it. Why? They had such a low view of Scripture, the connection in the old and new, like you've just described, that it all became irrelevant. Because then it's just platitudes about living right. And what was the sermon I listened to there a while back? I was riding a bicycle, and the pastor here in town was talking about riding a bicycle, and the girl could ride the bike better than him. And I got so frustrated listening to this sermon where he's talking about how you know, what the spiritual lesson that I learned from that is that Jesus loves me even though I can't ride the bike as good as the girl down the street that I grew up with. And that's just irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Covenant theology makes every bit of it relevant to me. Where I don't have to cut out part of the scripture. Where I don't have to say, well, I don't know, I don't, it doesn't matter. And then you start making it just your own faith. And it's a very slippery slope. And I'm telling you, lots of people are on that slope. Lots of people. That are kind of one foot in the church, one foot in the world. And they sort of have this theology. That's what I found. I think it's important. I don't think you have to walk up and say, you believe in covenant theology? But I think the views that you're trying to show us here are defining to me. Yeah, and and that's just like you said, staying grounded. Hearing, you know, hearing the word of God preached and understood, and those are what's going to protect you against any of that error that can can easily occur. And it's, and we have to be gracious to them because they are, they really do want to to serve the Lord and they want to do right. And so we have to be careful that we're we're gracious to them in that. Yep, go ahead. One verse that kind of helped me to think like this. Passage that I, I kind of use it that way is uh, John 14 and the interaction that uh, Thomas and Philip
Yeah. That's, that's great that you bring up that passage because Jesus was God made flesh. He was God that had came down and dwelt among men. He was that same one. You know, he, he was there. Yeah, he was there in the Old Testament when he when those words were given to Isaiah. He gave them to Isaiah. He's the Lord that Isaiah sang about. He is he is that one. Uh, he was there in the garden, walking in the cool of the morning, looking for his children who had just sinned. And so, we, if if we ever begin to separate that, we we've, we've lost the whole picture of what the scriptures are trying to teach us. It's good. Any other thoughts? All right. Well, let me close this in prayer. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is telling one big story makes it really easy for us because we need it easy. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be faithful teachers, that we'd be faithful learners of your word for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray.